0: All right, I'm going to warn you, not because we're just saying it as well, but I'm going to warn you that this, is going to, this introduction is going to be a little longer than normal, okay? so just be prepared for that. Um, I want to begin by asking a question, as I often do, and that question is this. I want you to keep this question in mind as we go through the passage. Uh, if you can, uh, that'd be good. I'll remind you of it in just a minute because the introduction is going to be a little longer than usual. But the question is this. If, if you were told that the end of the world was coming because Christ was returning on May 1st, so that's a week from today, what would you do? Now, two weeks ago in verses uh, 5 to 24... We learned that in this passage that we're in, Jesus is separating what the uh, disciples had conflated. Uh, They were, um, he was separating uh, what they had conflated in regards to the end of an age with the end of the ages. He was clarifying that the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, uh, that was geographically and nationally specific to Israel, and the end of the world, which was uh, global, or which would be global, and would involve all the nations of the earth, were not the same thing. They were different. Uh, The destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem were simply going to be uh, signs, or it was going to be a sign of the beginning of the end, the age in which the temple was the focal point, um, the heart and soul of Israel, um, it, it signals an end that pointed to the end. It was the beginning of an end, the beginning of the end, and it was it's pointing to that final, that final day of judgment. The judgment of Israel, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem was actually pointing to, He was clarifying, making sure they understood, it was pointing to the ultimate judgment and ultimate destruction of, of the current heavens and earth uh, prior to the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. But as we said a couple of weeks ago, the disciples were not, they were not cluing in uh, because He had not yet died. Right? That's coming up in about three days. But from our vantage point of redemptive history, we understand. We understand that the general signs that would begin in just a few days would be like birth pains. They would begin intermittently. They would become more regular. And over the course of time, they would become more severe until the end of the ages, In other words, the signs that were fulfilled in A.D. 70 are also being fulfilled as we wait for the culmination of all things. And what we're waiting for, if you'll remember, what we're waiting for, according to the end of verse 24, is the time of the gospel to be complete. You see, despite Israel becoming a nation in 1948… Jerusalem continues to be trampled upon by the Gentiles, and all you have to do is look to the temple mount and see the Muslim mosque that sits there. And you know that to be true. And in the meantime, Jesus didn't tell His disciples, await the rapture, look for the rapture, he didn't say look forward to look to a golden age that's going to become bef- come before or will come after uh, His return. What He did was He used very specific Old Testament language to say that the next big event in redemptive history was to be His return. Look at verse 25. Yes, we're jumping into the text, but this is still a part of the introduction. Look at verse 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then he says this, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's actually an absolutely remarkable statement. And I want you to hear the words of Pastor Kim Riddlebarger regarding the parallel passage that we find in Mark chapter 13. He says this, Jesus is not only claiming to be, is to be the realization of Yahweh's everlasting kingdom as foretold by the prophet. Jesus is stating things of himself which throughout the Old Testament had only been used in reference to Yahweh. The critical difference between Daniel 7 and Jesus' words here is that in this instance, when Jesus speaks of His second advent, He does not speak of being led into the presence of the Ancient of Days, or Yahweh, as we read about in Daniel 7. When Jesus speaks of His second advent, I just read that, instead, Jesus states that at His coming, he He Himself will gather all the scattered people of God. Throughout the Old Testament, this gathering of the saints is directly attributed to Yahweh and is the key feature of the Messianic age. Jesus is stating that He is going to come in great glory and power, something properly assigned to Yahweh. The imagery used by Jesus is a very familiar one to people of his day, a great hero king riding on a magnificent chariot, this time on the clouds of heaven, who will be acknowledged by all, friend and foe alike, at the time of his grand arrival. Utterly remarkable what he's claiming here. And it's very similar to what he said back, if you'll remember, back in chapter 17. He said then, and he's saying now, his return is going to be distinctive. It's going to be set apart. The power that is going to be put on display is really going to be cataclysmic. It will affect nature. It will affect the creative order of all things. And while it will be glorious to those who are in Christ, magnificently glorious, It is going to produce distress of mind, and anguish of heart, and perplexity, and consternation, and uncertainty, uncertainty, doubt, and fear, and trepidation in those who are not in Christ. It's going to be divisive. Now, before we go any further, I want to take just a brief minute to address an issue that is pertinent to this text and I want to do so for one very important reason, to do it here, because I want to do it here so that I don't avoid it, but I want to address it here so that we can focus on the point of the passage, because oftentimes this problem tends to distract us from what Jesus is, is expressing, and, what, and the point is that He's trying to get across. So I, again, I don't want to avoid the issue, but I also don't want to become bogged down in it as we're moving through. And the problem, or the issue, or the problem is this. There's a great deal of confusion and debate regarding verse 32. If you have your Bibles open, I'd encourage you to look there. The confusion and debate revolve around how to interpret this generation. Another way to put that would be is who is that generation or this generation? Who is it actually? And I'm not going to take time to lay out all of the options, Um, It would take too long to do that. I simply want to share the conclusion that I've come to, and because every, and I do mean every, every commentator says this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of Scripture, I encourage you to go home and to study for yourself and come to your own conclusion, right? Right? the conclusion that I've come to is this. This generation refers to those who Jesus is talking to at that time. And I believe that because I believe his comment about this generation, seeing all this, you look at the verse, it says this generation, before you'll see all this, refers back to the original question that was asked of Jesus at the time that we saw two weeks ago. In other words, all of this that he says in verse 32 refers to these things found in verse 7 and found in verses 9 to 12. So it's referring to that generation. However, there is something for us to apply, it can be applied to us. I want you to listen to these words from Philip Riken and James Boyce. Mr. Riken says this, or Pastor Riken says this it is hard to be entirely certain exactly what Jesus meant by the word generation. We believe that everything He said was true, so we know He could not have meant that the second coming would happen before His disciples died. We also know this, absolutely everything that Jesus ever said about the end time will take place just as He said it would. Jesus is not trying to give us clues we can use to figure out when the end will come or who will see it happen. Rather, He's telling us how certain these things are to take place And then he quotes a gentleman by the name of Howard Marshall. He says, the emphasis is on the certainty of the end rather than on limiting the date of the end. And then James Boyce writes this, they, his disciples, knew of many false Christs, heard of wars and rumors of wars, experienced famines, earthquakes, witnessed apostasy, and heard of false prophets. And then he says this, so has every generation since. Therefore, we have all seen, we have all seen everything we need to see or can see prior to Jesus' return. We have nothing to look forward to except the second coming. The bottom line, he says, is that we need to be Ready? because no one knows about that day or hour when the Lord will come. So with all that said, we now need to focus on the point of the passage. As I said two weeks ago, Jesus didn't say any of these things in order for us to predict or speculate about the future in general, or about the date of His return specifically. He said these things to equip us, His disciples then and us now, for the already and not yet. Life between His two advents. And our outline comes simply from the imperative verbs that He gives in the passage. Christ wanted His disciples then, Christ wants His disciples now to be ready or to be confident to be aware, to be watchful, and then to be prayerful. And before we go any further, let's, let's pray together. Father, by Your Spirit, would You grant power to the preaching of Your Word? Grant all of us the spiritual eyes and ears we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding these words of Christ and His gospel. Would You awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, and then refresh us and encourage us and comfort us? I stand here, as always, unfit for this task, so please attend to me as I do this work to which you've called me, and grant me grace, and fill me with the Spirit that I might do something good for you this evening. And I pray all these things for Christ's sake and for the sake of His church. Amen. So let's begin in verse 28. and Be confident. And remember the question. told you I'd remind you. Remember the question. If the end of the world, if you were told the end of the world was to come because Jesus was returning on May 1st, a week from today, what would you do? Having shared the signs of His return. okay, that, that's, that's been done, and, and he's shared that there's going to be this fearful apprehension on the part of those who are not trusting in Him, not looking to Him to be their Savior and Redeemer. He says in verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He looks at the disciples that have gathered around, and He says, when, when all of this starts, don't be like them. Don't be like those who are not trusting in Me. Don't scratch your head and wonder you know, what's going on. Don't, don't begin to worry Don't let your emotions get the best of you. Don't let your thoughts begin to overtake you. Don't don't be covered up and don't cower in fear. What you need to do is straighten up and raise your head. In other words, stand tall, shoulders back, right? Have great great posture. Lift your head because you need to be confident. Confident. While the end is to come because it must come, the end doesn't mean your destruction is near. The end means your redemption is near. So we shouldn't be, he says, you shouldn't be weighed down in fearful anticipation. Rather, you should be uplifted by a holy expectation. Yes, it's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be chaotic, but that's because redemption is not simply a matter of helping everyone with minor self-improvement projects or renovation projects. Redemption involves a complete recreation of everything because everything has been corrupted by sin. And we think, well, wait, wait a minute. Aren't we already redeemed in the work of the cross? Haven't we already been set free from our bondage to sin through His sacrifice, and haven't, hasn't, um, haven't we been set free because He's already paid the debt that we owed? Hasn't redemption already happened? And, and we can answer with a resounding yes. Thanks be to God. We have been redeemed. But what He's talking about is the consummation of redemption. He's talking about the fullness and the finality of redemption. He's talking about the fullness and the finality of what we've only experienced in part. Yes, we have been truly redeemed. But he's talking about, in Paul's words, that redemption, that that creation for which creation, creation groans, longing for that day. He's talking about not just being freed from the penalty of sin or the power of sin, but of course the presence of sin. He's talking about being free of the corruption and the decay of our bodies and the world, and being free from the world in which we live. He's talking about having new bodies. That are free and corruption and pain and sadness and suffering and death will not only not be there, it will not be possible. And he said, Be confident. Be confident in the midst of the signs, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the turmoil, because it's drawing near. It's coming. Then he said to beware. Look at verse 29. He, he says, and he told them this parable, or Luke says, and he told him this parable, and the parable he told was this. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these signs taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. It's a great illustration for right now. Many of you said to me, oh, I'm so glad we went to Blowing Springs last week. Why? Because of the red buds and the dogwoods. So the redwoods and dogwoods are in bloom. The oak trees and the maple trees—they're all leafing. Seems to be overnight. And while not everyone is a fan, and what does that tell us? It tells us spring is here, right? The red buds are blooming, which means the crappie are biting. But the leafing and the budding tells us that spring is here. But it also tells us something else. It says, and while not everyone's a fan of this particularly here in Arkansas, um, it is a sure sign of something that's in- inevitable, which is the summer. Summer is coming. Spring is here. Summer is coming. It's just around the corner. The signs that it's near are the trees that are blooming and leafing today. So, he says, when you, when you see the signs, treat them like the buds and the leaves on the trees and be aware be aware, recognize, know, be certain that the kingdom is near, the end is near, your redemption is near. Don't become fixated, you know, or uh, to the point that you're preoccupied with, with, the, with the signs. Just be aware that you are going to see these things. Don't be surprised. You're, you're going to see the signs. You're going to see the beginning of the end and the end, by the way, he says, is as sure as the beginning. And so if you've seen the end, and it's a very, in a very real sense, you've also, because you've seen the beginning, in a very real sense, you've also seen the end. These signs are a proof that what I've said is true, and what I've said will happen, will in fact happen. He's saying what he did to the Apostle John. John. The day is coming when I will make all things new. And he said, These words are trustworthy and His word is more true than the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. They're more trustworthy and true than creation itself. Everything, heaven and earth and everything in between is temporary and will pass away. But his word, his words are permanent. They've been firmly established. And so he said, be aware, they will come to pass. Then he says, be watchful, be confident, be aware, be watchful. Look at verse thirty-four, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Back in chapter 17, He warned of His coming and His judgment and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth and the establishment of His kingdom and the sudden nature of that, and, and that we need to make decisions early. We need to make changes early because they need to be done in advance because that day is going to come. Right? It's, going to be, it's going to be definitive, a definitive moment. There'll be no looking back, His focus here is the same. It's on the suddenness and the surprising nature of his return. And he warns of two potential dangers. Two potential dangers that could be very, very problematic if they refuse to pay attention to themselves. And remember, he's talking to the disciples and he's saying to them pay attention to yourselves. Don't allow your hearts to develop a lack of enthusiasm. Don't allow your hearts to develop a lack of interest or a lack of concern for my return or for His return and grow careless in or callous toward the things of God. And it gets very specific. The first danger was a preoccupation with the excessive use of and dependence upon alcohol. Whether the lack of attention or watchfulness results in questions regarding the importance of of living lives in obedience to God and and, and a life that honors the Lord or that leads to doubting the veracity of God's Word or whether whether what He said about His return is actually true. The end result in either case is it could result in a lifestyle that reflects the eat, drink, and be merry attitude we talked about last week. The idea is, if he's coming back soon, or if he's not coming back soon, or if he's not coming back at all, we might as well enjoy this life and get all from it that we can because tomorrow we die. Psalm one hundred four fifteen says, "God makes wine to gladden the heart of man." That means, that means alcohol. That means wine. It's a gift from the Lord. And that gift is to be enjoyed like all of his gifts. We are to enjoy the gifts that he's given us. And we do, we do so, we enjoy them when we do so in faith to his glory. But he says carelessly or purposefully misusing it to the point of excess is sinful. The overdesire of it, the overindulgence of it is idolatry. And so the Lord says, "Be watchful don't let yourself fall into sin and be caught by surprise at his return and by the way alcohol isn't the only thing we over over desire and over over indulge in particularly to use to escape from and numb ourselves of the difficulties of life so we must be watchful by willing to apply this principle more broadly to any and all idolatrous activities. So just in case you were thinking, well, this doesn't apply to me because I don't drink, you're wrong. The second danger was a preoccupation with the cares of this life. He says a lack of attention or watchfulness can lead to an anxiety-producing overemphasis upon the daily routines and activities of life, much of which which are good and right and necessary. He says it can also lead to an unhealthy pattern of seeking to self-justify yourselves before God and before other people through fulfilling certain roles that, again, are right, good, and, and many of which are right, good, and necessary. It can also lead to a heart that, that desires uh, things that are temporal and moth and rust can destroy rather than the things that are eternal. Everything that He's been saying all along, He's saying here again. We've heard these things numerous times. So, the Lord says, be watchful. Don't let yourself fall into sin. Don't get surprised by, Christ, by, by my return And again, this warning applies to everyone. No one is immune. He says judgment will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. And finally, in verse 36, he says be prayerful, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And knowing, and it's not by accident that He says this right here, tells them to stay awake and pray, because in just a few days they're going to do exactly that. But He's talking about more than what's coming up in a few days. He's talking about overall, in the midst of that which is to come, there will be times when the only solace they can find, the only time that we can find solace is in times of prayer. And they were, pray, they were to pray, and we were to pray for strength and endurance, specific things, strength and endurance. It would take a God-given, he says it's a God-given strength, it will take a God-given strength to endure the things that were about to take place They would need help to endure to the end. They would need help to standing in the end, and not just standing in terms of surviving right? everything that was going to take place in the signs. It's not just a matter of surviving the distress and the turmoil and the suffering and the persecution, but a standing before Him in judgment, which was far greater than any of the signs they were going to experience. Standing before Him in judgment is far greater than anything you, will ever, you and I will ever experience in terms of signs that are pointing, to, pointing us toward being aware of and confident in uh, His judgment that is to come in the, in the last day. And of course, right, we, need, we, we need Him to help us stand. We need to pray that we are able to stand because the only way... And that favorable verdict only comes as we're looking to Him and trusting in Him to be our advocate and mediator. The only way that we're going to stand is to look to Jesus. It's only as we rest in His payment of our debt, it's only as we rest in His righteousness that's imputed to us that we will be able to stand before God. Because as I heard one pastor say this week, we need Him even on our best day. Now, I find it very interesting that Luke concludes the passage in verses 37 and 38 with what appears to be just this passing remark. Oh, yeah, by the way, Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and he was teaching. But it's a significant remark. It's a significant remark because he's, again, he is days away. He's days away from his suffering and his crucifixion, and what is he doing? He's doing what he always, has always done. There's nothing new on this Wednesday that he hadn't done a year before or three years before that. His ministry of proclamation continues. So do you remember the question that I asked? If you were told the end of the world was coming because Christ was returning on May 1st, what would you do? Would you lack confidence that you would or could stand as one who has been justified and forgiven and adopted, redeemed, or would would His appearance lead you to fear and trepidation? Would you be possibly so distracted and preoccupied with the day-to-day that you forgot it was May 1st? Would you be eating and drinking and way too merry or too numb to notice or care? Would you have to make several last minute changes this week in your routines or lifestyle in order to prepare? Or would you simply live as you've been living because you've remained confident, aware, watchful, and prayerful? Because here's the thing we've not been told the date because the date is irrelevant. That's why I addressed this generation at the beginning. We get so caught up in our discussions about what this generation means that we fail to consider the point that he's driving at. Scripture said he would come. He said, and the Scripture said He would die. He said, and the Scripture said that He would rise again from the dead. He has said, and Scripture has said, He is going to return. And we've been given instructions on how to live while we wait. Therefore, the time to make the adjustments we need to make is now. Listen to these words from Peter, confident, be aware, be watchful, and be prayerful. Listen to these words from Peter, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Jesus' last words recorded in Revelation 22 are these, surely I am coming soon. May our prayer be, amen. Come quickly. Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, by Your Spirit and grace, would You enable us to receive the Word with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard Your Word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For the sake of Christ and His church, I pray these things. Amen.